Amateur Austrians, amateur economists, trendsetters, bricklayers, everyone else. This morning I'm just going to read from one of my favourite authors who I, uh, and, and investment advisors, and uh, Chris Leithner. He, he wrote a book called The Evil Princes of Martin Place, uh, as well as another book called um, The Intelligent Australian Investor. He's probably written another one, I can't think off the top of my head, but, uh, and he uh, has a company in Brisbane, Australia, called uh, Leithner & Co. And if you've got more than half a million dollars, that's where I'd, uh, that's where I'd put it. Uh, once I'd, once I'd uh, got to, a, to a, a physical amount of precious metal of 50% of my net worth, I'd sort of give the rest to him and go, well, or give, give, give him at least half a million or more, whatever, whatever you can't afford to lose, probably. And uh, give, it, give it to Leithner and Cohen and say, here, do that. They, they take 20% of the, of the profit and they take 0% of the loss. There's no management fees. They win, you win. I love it. It's great. Anyway, so this is chapter three of his book, um, the Evil Princes of Martin Place. And it, it was a revelation. When I first read this, I just thought, wow, you know, all these years my eyes have been closed and now they're open. So it's a little bit involved and it's a little bit, um, takes a minute to, to grasp and I have to keep reading it over and over because I haven't got the intelligence of this guy um, to, to, to get it in my head. But once once uh, he explains it so eloquently, uh, I can break it down into basically what it really means. Uh, I'll, I'll attempt to. Now, this is a, it's a fairly long, this is chapter three, and I'm just not going to stop because I love it. I love reading it so much. Uh, and at the start, he's got, a, uh, he's got a quote from Jesus Hutera de Soto from his book, Money, Bank, Credit and Economic Cycles, uh, 2006. So we've got uh, economic analysis, I quote, economic analysis uh, of law are certainly necessary, but they call for a less restrictive methodology than has generally been used to date, one more suited to this particular field of research. The subjectivist view is a more fitting approach developed by the Austrian school. It is based on their concept of creative human action or entrepreneurial activity and employs a dynamic analysis of the general processes of social interaction. This perspective promises to make great contributions to the future development of economic analysis of judicial institutions. And here we go with Chris. Words are both convenient and dangerous things. Carefully and dispassionately used, everyday vocabulary and specialist jargon alike can transmit complex ideas accurately and efficiently. Employed carelessly, however, terminology creates vagueness, ambiguity and misunderstanding and in extreme cases it can obstruct reasoning, obscure evidence and thereby set the stage for egregious mistakes and even catastrophes. Who would have thought that so much mischief could spring from the confusion of the seemingly simple concepts of loan and deposit? 
Starting from first principles, this chapter distinguishes the em- emphasis and emphasizes the fundamental and irre- irreconcilable differences between the irregular deposit contract and the loan contract. More than 2,000 years ago, classical Roman jurists understood this distinction well. Unfortunately, in the centuries that followed, and as we will see in chapter 4, bankers and politicians conspired for their own benefit to obfuscate these differences. Since the middle of the 19th century, scholars, jurors, bankers, investors, politicians and journalists have displayed an almost total inability to distinguish these distinct types of contract. As a result, this confusion has been enshrined in contract law and entrenched in the modern state's banking legislation and regulations. Conceptual confusion has led to economic and financial misunderstanding, which has spawned misguided policies and erroneous investment decisions. Therein, in a nutshell, lies the ultimate cause of a series of financial panics and crises over the past 250 years, culminating in and including the ongoing financial global crisis. Now this wasn't written just today. This was written a few years back. So uh, it still rings true and never more so now than, than it does today. I'll carry on. Let's clari- uh, clarify our terms. The loan. A loan, according to the shorter Oxford Dictionary, is a thing lent, especially a sum of money lent for a fixed period of time to be returned in money or money's worth and usually at interest. To lend something is to transfer its use from one person, the lender, to another, the borrower, for some period of time. The borrower and lender understand that at, that at the end of the agreed period, the item lent or its equivalent, usually together with some consideration, interest, will be returned to the lender. Given this standard definition, we can distinguish two kinds of loans. In the loan for use, uh, comodatum, only the use of the item that's lent, not its ownership, is transferred temporarily from the lender to the borrower. At the loan's conclusion, the borrower must return the item to its owner. In the loan for consumption, mutum, the ownership as well as the use of the item being lent is transferred from the lender to the borrower. It is understood that the borrower will consume or sell etc. the the item lent and that he is obliged to return an item of the same quality and quantity plus interest as the thing received and consumed. So I'll just break off there. There's, There's a small difference between lending someone something and not transferring ownership of that something to that per, to the borrower and lending someone something and transferring the ownership and then receiving something uh, of equal value uh, similar back. The comodatum contract. The Latin term comodatum refers to an implicit agreement or formal contract whereby one person, the lender, entrusts to another, the borrower, or commoditary, a specific item which the latter will use for a certain period of time. The possession of the item temporarily transfers from one person to another. Its ownership, however, remains at all times with the lender. At the end of an agreed period of time, what was lent must be returned to its owner. For example, Jim lends his car, say an Audi with a number plate 123456, 
for, for the weekend to his friend Dave. Jim continues to own the car during the time that Dave uses it and Dave must return it to Jim before the latter leaves for work on Monday morning. Let's say Dave agrees to remain in possession of the car throughout the weekend, use it properly as if it was his, his car, recompense Jim for any damage incurred, refill its petrol tank and return it to Jim at the agreed time. The Mutum Contract For our purposes, the borrowing and lending of fungible and consumable goods such as petroleum, wheat and especially money are vitally important. Fungible goods are, are given fungible goods are goods a given unit of which can, for the purpose of consumption and the repayment of a loan, replace any equivalent unit. As a, as a simple example, Jim lends one metric ton of a particular type of wheat, call it X, uh, of a particular grade or quality, call it Y, to Dave, so that Dave can short sell it. Note that, th that in this loan, Jim's ownership of the wheat undergoes a subtle but significant change. Once he lends it, he no longer owns the specific metric ton he lent to Dave. Instead, he owns the right to receive one metric ton of uh, quality uh, X and quantity Y uh, at or before time Z. Dave agrees that he will return the amount of that particular type and quality of wheat to Jim. Equally clearly, Dave will not return the very same specific metric ton that he borrowed. There's no way he could do so. Perhaps he sold it to a baker who has used it to make bread. If he sold it on a grain exchange, he has no idea to whom he sold it, precisely because it is fungible. Any metric ton of this particular type and grade of wheat is for commercial and legal purposes identical to another and will satisfactorily repay Dave's obligation to Jim. For this reason, and also because wheat is perishable, Jim accepts, indeed he assumes, that he won't receive the same metric ton that he lent to Dave. The Latin word mutum refers to the contract whereby one person, the lender, entrusts to another, the borrower or mutuary, a certain quantity of fungible goods and the borrower is obliged by some specific date to return equivalent. In terms of quantity and quality, fungible goods. The Latin term tantundum denotes these goods of identical quality and qual quality and quantity that the borrower must return to the lender. A monetary loan contract provides the typical example of a mutum. By this contract, the lender agrees to transfer the possession of a certain quantity of money to the borrower. In return, the loan's recipient uses or consumes the money and, at the end of the spe specified period, promises to return the tantundum. That is, the number of units of currency he has borrowed plus interest. Time preference begets interest. In the mutum, both the possession and the ownership of the goods which have been lent, but not, it is vital to understand, the ownership of the tantundum, pass from the borrower to the lender. Notice that then that from the point of view of the lender, the mutum entails an exchange of present goods, that is goods which the lender can use or consume today for future goods, goods which he cannot use or consume today, but will be able to use or consume when the loan is repaid. Also notice that the lender has a time preference. This means that under cerebus paribus, all things being equal, circumstances the lender, the lender always prefers to 
a given quantity of present goods to an equivalent quantity of future goods. Hence, most lenders, like human beings, will agree to relinquish a given quantity of units of some fungible present good only in exchange for a greater number of units of that fungible good to be received at a specific date in the future. That's deferred gratification, trendsetters. The difference between the number of units the lender de delivers to the borrower when the com commencement of the loan and the number received from the borrower at its conclusion is the loan's interest. Interest is the valuation of the lender's time. It is the reward he receives for foregoing the use and consumption of what he lends for the duration of the loan and for awaiting the loan's termination. The deposit contract. A loan contract always transfers the availability of the good being lent and sometimes a fungible good provides the typical example, its ownership from the lender to the borrower for the duration of the contract's term. In sharp contracts, uh, co contrast, another type of contract, the deposit contract, sometimes, again in the case of fungible good, transfers ownership of the good as opposed to its tantundum, but never the tantundum's availability, the contract of deposit, in Latin, depositum, is a contract whereby one person, the depositor, entrusts to another, the depository, a good which the depository will guard, protect and return at any moment the depositor, requir the re depositor requests it. This is far different to the previous example. The fundamental purpose of the deposit contract is the custody for the related purposes of convenient storage and safekeeping of the good and it stipulates that the complete and instant availability of the good or its tantundum remains at all times with the depositor who may request its return at any moment and without notice. The obligation of the depositor apart from the delivery of the good or tantundum to the depository is to compensate the depository for the costs of storage and safekeeping. Notice that when the deposit is properly understood, the depository does not pay interest to the depositor. Quite the contrary, the depositor pays the depository for the convenience, storage and safekeeping of the deposit. The obligation of the depository is diligently to store and protect the good, and immediately to return it to the depositor upon request. Clearly by its very nature, every loan must have a fixed term. Equally clearly, by its very nature, no deposit can have a fixed term. In this, so that's the difference between the loan and the deposit. This is because the deposit must always and instantly be available to the depositor and it terminates in response to a request from the depositor as soon as the depository returns it to the depositor. A deposit's term is therefore inherently inter intermediate, indeterminate, sorry. The deposit of fungible goods, i.e. The, the irregular deposit contract. We often wish to, to deposit non-fungible things such as a painting, an item of jewellery or a sealed chest full of gold and gold coins, uh, as well as fungible goods such as 100 metric metres of wheat, 1,000 barrels of oil or 100,000 uh, cubic metres of gas or, or, or $10 million. We may not, for example, have enough space to store the oil or gas we may not have a suitable place in terms of humidity, temperature, etc. to store the painting. And we may not have a secure place to keep the jewellery or the money. Accordingly, whether they, they're fungible or not, we seek to deposit goods for purposes of convenience, storage and safekeeping. 
In addition, deposits of fungible goods perform an important economic function that deposits of non-fungible goods cannot fulfill. It would be senseless and costly to deposit a large amount of wheat in many separately numbered sacks in which ownership is not transferred. Similarly, it, it makes little sense to place deposits of banknotes in individually numbered and sealed envelopes, etc., in these cases which describe the relationship of the parties to a, a safe deposit box. The ownership of the deposit would not be transferred. As a result, the convenience and efficiency which result from pooling individual deposits without loss of availability to the depositor would be lost. In this respect, the deposit of all fungible good of a fungible good does not differ from the deposit of a non-fungible good. For both kinds of goods, the deposit's defining feature is its immediate and complete availability to the depositor. The only difference is that when we that when they are deposited, fungible goods typically become indiscernibly mixed or pooled with other goods of the same quality and type. One deposit of a particular kind of quality of wheat, for example, is added to the warehouse's pool of that variety and quality of wheat, that is, with all other deposits of similar kind and quality. Similarly, oil is poured into a tank at a refinery and money is, is added into a bank's vault, physical and electronic. Hence the custom gradually arose and was formalised into law as long as he maintains available to the depositor wheat of the same quantity and quality as that deposited, i.e. the tantundum, the owner of the grain warehouse can use the grain he, he receives from one deposit either for his own use or to return to another depositor. If a friend gives you a normal and fungible, that is not an antique or collectible $20 note of serial number 123456 for safekeeping, he transfers to you the ownership of that note and retains the tantundum, that is, the right to demand $20 at any time. As the depository, you may use the deposited $20 note for any purposes as long as you retain the equivalent amount in the form of another $20 note, two $10 notes or four fives, etc. of money. The amount your friend requests, the moment your friend requests his $20, you can, at your discretion, submit to him the four $5 notes or some other equivalent of $20 notes. In this vital sense, you maintain a 100% reserve. Does the depositor hereby continue to own the particular unit of wheat, oil or banknotes that he deposited? No. In exchange for his deposit and the transfer of its ownership, he is granted title to an equivalent number of units of the good in the pool or tank or vault. When the depositor withdraws what he has deposited, he receives the exact equivalent in terms of quantity and quality of what he deposited, the Latin word remember is tantundum, and in virtually no case will he receive the same specific units he deposited. The oil or wheat or money etc. he deposits is mixed with that of other depositors making it impossible to distinguish one deposit from another. Hence the deposit of fungible goods is called an irregular deposit. Yet it's important to emphasize that, irregular that the irregular deposit fully shares the same fundamental nature of all deposits. The obligation of custody, safekeeping and availability for instant retrieval. In the irregular deposit there is always an immediate availability in favor of the depositor who has at any time go to the grain warehouse, oil storage tank or bank safe 
and withdraw the equivalent quantity and quality of what he originally deposited. The owner of the grain warehouse, etc., can use the specific wheat, etc., he receives either for his own use to return to another depositor or to return to another depositor as long as he maintains the 10 tundum, instantly available to all depositors. This principle clearly applies to all fungible goods, including money. Effects of the failure to comply with the essential obligation. What happens when a depository fails to honour its obligation to the depositor? Clearly the latter has a claim against the former and the depository must compensate the depositor. How might this, this failure occur? Consider the case of a regular deposit, i.e. the deposit of a non-fungible good. Let's say you deposit antique and, uh, and antique heirloom furniture which possesses great sentimental as well as economic value with a depository. Without your knowledge and consent and in violation of the contract of deposit, the depository sells the furniture to a third party and retains the funds received in the sale for his own use. In this case, the depository has committed the offence of misappropriation and perhaps if it can be demonstrated that the depository enticed you to deposit the antiques so that he could sell them of fraud. And a regular deposit, i.e. the deposit of fungible good of a fungible good provides an exact parallel. Let's say that you deposit a certain amount of oil with a depository and in exchange receive a receipt which entitles you at any time to claim this amount of oil from the depository. However, without your knowledge and consent and in violation of the contract of deposit, the depository sells the oil you've deposited to a third party and retains the funds received for his own use. When you submit your receipt to him and demand the specified quantity of oil, you discover that the depository has violated the terms of the deposit contract. The depository who does not keep in his tanks a quantity of oil equal to the total deposited with him or who receives money and uses it in any way for his own benefit, for example pay his own expenses or lending it to a third party, in other words does not maintain 100% reserve at all times is guilty of misappropri misappropriation. The ancients understood this, most notably the Corpus Jurius Civilis, body of civil law, the collection of fundamental works in, in jurisprudence issued from 528 to 534 by order of Ju Justinian I, Emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, stipulated that if a depository were unable to return a deposit on demand, then not only was he guilty of mi misappropriation, he was also obliged to pay a penalty to the depositor. In this case, the, the payment was a time-related penalty tied to the deposit inability to, to access his deposit. The longer the depository's inability to return the deposit, the greater was the amount payable to the depositor. The depository who falsifies the number of deposit slips or, or vouchers issued to depositors commits a related offence. Examples include the oil depository who issues counterfeit vouchers to be traded by third parties and more generally, any depository of a fungible good, including money, who issues slips or vouchers for a, a larger amount than actually deposited. In these instances, <coughs> excuse me, in these instances, now I've lost my place, the offences include document forgery, the issue of false documents, and fraud the issue of counterfeit vouchers in order to deceive third parties and obtain a specific profit. Notice that in the, the economic terms, the underlying offence 
is identical. The depository has failed to maintain 100% reserve at all times. The irreconcilable differences between monetary irregular deposit contract and the monetary loan contract. The widespread inability to distinguish these distinct types of contract arises partly from the excessive and undue importance given to the fact that they share, at least roughly, one similarity. In the irregular deposit of money or of any other fungible good, we may, we may concede that the ownership of the deposited good as opposed to the tantundum transfers to the depository just as it always does in the loan contract. Although this is the only similarity between the two types of contract, it has led many scholars to, be, to the mistaken conclusion that they are similar in, res, in all respects. In the irregular deposit, the transfer of ownership of the goods deposited, but not of the tantundum, is a secondary requirement arising from the fact that the object of the deposit is a fungible good for which all practical purposes cannot be handled individually. We have seen that many advantages accompany the combination or pooling of fungible deposits and treatment of individual units indistinctly. Indeed, indeed, because one may not legally demand the return of the absolute specific items deposited, since it is a physical impossibility, um, it may appear necessary to consider that a transfer of ownership occurs with the regard to the specific units deposited, as these are distinguishable from one another. As a result, the depository becomes the owner of the deposited items, but only in the sense that as for as long as he holds the tantundum, he is free to allocate the particular and now indistinguishable units as he chooses. This is the full extent to which the property rights are transferred to the irregular deposit. Unlike the loan contract, where complete availability of the loan good is transferred for the duration of the loan's term, clearly then, this transfer of ownership has a very different legal and economic meaning in which in each contract. Perhaps it is wisest to maintain that in the irregular deposit there is no true transfer of ownership because the depositor at all times retains ownership over the tantundum. The essential legal differences between the two contracts stem from their fundamental economic differences. In the words of Ludwig von Mises, if the loan in the economic sense means the exchange of a present good or present service against a future good or future service, then it is hardly possible to regard in the, the, the irregular deposit under the conception of credit. A depositor of a sum of money who, who requires in exchange for it a claim convertible into money at any time, which will perform exactly the same service for him as the sum it refers to, has exchanged no present good or for a future good. The depositing of the money in no way means that he has renounced immediate disposal over the utility that it commands. Mises concludes that the deposit is not a credit transaction because the essential element, the exchange of present goods for future goods, is absent. Mises recognised that in the irregular deposit of money, there is no relinquishment of present goods in favour of a larger quantity of future goods at the end of a fixed period of time. Rather, there is simply a change in the manner of possessing present goods. In the irregular deposit, the availability of the tantundum is not transferred. It remains continuously at the depositor's disposal. In the loan contract, availability always transfers from the lender to the borrower. Further, the loan contract usually includes an interest agreement, whereas in the monetary irregular deposit contract, interest 
uh, agreements are logically and economically absurd. The, the ubiquitous payment of interest on deposits by modern banks merely confirms the deeply entrenched confusion of banks, governments and the, central, and the general public about the economic characteristics of the deposit. The irregular deposit contract and loan contract under classical Roman law. The first problem for all of us, men and women, is not to learn but to unlearn, said Gloria Steinem. To learn good economics, we must purge bad economics from our minds. Similarly, we, uh, to, to uncover sound legal principles, we must first clear dense thickets of which, which have accrued over the centuries of bad legal decision, legislation and regulation. The traditional and universal legal principles in relation to the irregular deposit contract and the loan contract did not emerge in a vacuum nor were they the result of deductive reasoning independent of, of sense experience. In the Corpus Jurius Civilis, Roman jurists bequeathed to us the concept of law as an underlying structure of rules which, with a bit of luck, we discern more clearly and understand better over time. Law exists from the start. Its discovery and proper application, however, makes takes time and proceeds erratically. Hence governments don't make law. At best they help to clarify and apply it. Typically they bastardise and flout it. And uh, Judge Napolitano will teach you about the difference between law and legislation. I, I will carry on. Cicero's rendering of Cato's words show that Roman jurists knew that law was not the invention of any man or group. Further, its compensation was the product of many minds over centuries. Or you can say that, uh, you know, you were born free under the eyes of God. You got your freedom from God, not from a government you know, directive. There never was in, a world, in the world a man so clever as to foresee everything and that even that if he could concentrate all brains into the head of one man, it would be impossible for him to provide for everything at one time without having the experience that comes from practice through a long period of history. Our understanding of law, in short, and of the consequences which ensue when we contravene it, emerges from a process of continuous trial and error in which each individual takes into account both of his own characteristics of the behaviours of others. Classical Roman jurists never sought to invent the law or to to create new law, but rather to discover pre-existing universal legal principles which inhere in the logical of human action and of social relationships. Accordingly, these jurists understood that the violation of law rends the fabric of, hu of human relationships. As part of this process, these jurists discovered the irregular deposit contract clarified its, ex its essential principles and elaborated its details. This contract is not, it's important to emphasize an intellectual con contrivance or an abstract creation. It is a natural consequence of human action as expressed in social interaction and co cooperation. I think I might just stop there guys. So that really rings true today. <coughs>
when people have their currency in a financial institution and they're, and they're being told, uh, we're going to have to ask you questions about this, uh, why you want to withdraw this deposit. That, that's, that's illegal. Well, that, the, everything's been muddled up. People think that when they put their money in the bank, that the bank then lends it out uh, for interest, and that's how people get interest. But a true deposit contract says that they have no right to do anything with it other than keep it safe for you and that you should pay for the storage of it and the safekeeping of it. Now, that's what happens when you hold gold in, the, in uh, a mint or you know, in, a, in, a, uh, in a vault. You pay a percentage or an agreed amount per year for them to guarantee that you can demand that at any time and have it, and have it returned to you. So that, that is, a de, is a deposit contract, it is not a loan. You, you are not lending your silver to the mint. You are paying them to, to make it so that you can ask for it any time you like and have it on demand. So all these bank accounts that people have, they, they have they've confused. And, and over the centuries since the Roman Empire, or especially in, since the advent of central banks, we, we have lost sight of that and we grow up and, and go to school and never are taught the difference with that. So there it is, guys. That's just so interesting, I found, I found to, to read that and to understand the differences between a loan and a deposit. It's, I just think it's fantastic. So... Thanks for, thanks for listening and getting through this. If you got to this to the end here, don't worry about subscribing. Just watch me whenever you like. I don't need the algorithm. And uh, we'll see you on the next one.